London Calling. London Walks Connecting. London Walks here with your daily London fix. Story time. History time. I've pretty much eschewed letting personal matters crash the party, elbow their way into this Today in London history series. But I'm going to bend that rule briefly here at the top of today's cast. Yesterday, I was under the jackboot of inordinate time pressure. There was a lot going on. Most important of all, we've had a house full of offspring and friends this month, and yesterday was their last full day at Shea, David, and Mary. So we, of course, laid on some special stuff, and needless to say, it was the Queen's funeral. That was required watching. As was House of the Dragon, because Mary was in yesterday's episode. Anyway, yes, full day, a lot of time pressure. And in the way of these things, I woke up in the middle of the night and realized I'd somehow managed to leave out of yesterday's cast a polished gem of a poetic reference. I'm now, thanks to listener Nancy in Bethesda, Maryland, very keen to work poetic ore into these podcasts whenever possible. That's Nancy's permanent fingerprint on them, thanks to a lovely note from her saying she particularly enjoys the literary references that quite often get worked into the weave. Well, sure enough, one day after I get that lovely note from Nancy, I manage to let her down, leave out a brilliant literary reference. So I'm going to remedy that right now. Yesterday's podcast was about Dr. Johnson's famous pronouncement, When a man is tired of London, he is tired of life. I said that Johnson was in his late 60s when he made that lapidary statement, said that he was very aware of the sands of time running out of his glass, and that in consequence he was traveling and visiting as much as possible, visiting old friends and his old haunts. And of course there it was, came to me at 3 a.m., came to my subconscious because I was sound asleep, And needless to say, 3 a.m. was about five hours too late. The podcast had been put into the bottle. The bottle had been corked and flung out onto the mighty main. But it's not as though I've dropped and shattered a priceless dragon and lotus porcelain vase. It's only a day later. I can go some way toward making amends in today's podcast. So here you go, Nancy. In 1777... Dr. Johnson was very aware of his advancing years. He was Andrew marvelously aware. But at my back, I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. And yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Yes, that's right. They're Andrew Marvel's famous lines from his poem to his coy mistress. Okay, let's get to today, September 21st, the autumn equinox. Spoiled for choice today. There was the duel fought between Castlereagh and Canning, dominant figures in the cabinet of Prime Minister William Henry Cavendish, pistols at dawn on Putney Heath. That was September 21st, 1809. There was another duel of sorts on September 21st, 1991, an ill-starred boxing match between Chris Eubank and Michael Watson. Poor Watson. He was only 24 years old. He suffered near-fatal brain damage from the bout. 
He was in a coma for 40 days. He spent six years in a wheelchair. He had to relearn how to talk, read, write, and walk. It's a huge pleasure to say that he went on to run a marathon, has raised hundreds of thousands of pounds for charities, and indeed, just three days ago, on September 18th, was inducted into the British Boxing Hall of Fame. Then there was the Frenchman's Spectacular Ascent and Parachute Descent in 1802. Monsieur Garnerin went up from North Audley Street, just off Grosvenor Square, and came down in a field near St. Pancras. In no time at all, a ballad was making the rounds of poetically inclined London. Bold Garnerin went up, which increased his repute, and came safe to earth in his grand parachute. There you go, Nancy in Bethesda. That's two helpings of verse for you for this one. But no verse, I should think, I hope anyway, for the September 21st, 1875 story. I'm talking about the hand that fell out of one of the parcels a youth had been asked to carry from a bankrupt shop by its dodgy owner. Proved to be a handy bit of evidence in the subsequent murder trial, and the perp swung. But that's another London story. Let it not detain us further. The tale I've decided to air out fully took place on September 21st, 1599. It's an account by a Swiss visitor, one Thomas Platter from Basel, of some of his theater going in London. The September 21st outing was to, yes, the Globe Theater, to see a performance of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. It's special in every way, this account, not least because that production of Julius Caesar is believed to be the first production mounted at the world's most famous theater. Now, all of that has theater historians salivating, but I also rejoice in Platter's account because of what it tells us about Londoners and life in London exactly 423 years ago. We learn about how Londoners spend their time. We learn that dinner is at midday. We learn about a couple of customs. We learn about Londoners' jollity. We learn about their preening and jingoism and sense of superiority vis-à-vis foreigners and just general self-satisfaction with being English. It's priceless, this document. Here it is. After dinner on the 21st of September, at about two o'clock, I went with my companions over the water, and in this strewn roof house saw the tragedy of the first Emperor Julius, with at least fifteen characters very well acted. At the end of the comedy they danced according to their custom with extreme elegance. Two in men's clothes and two in women's gave this performance in wonderful combination with each other. On another occasion, I also saw, after dinner, a comedy, not far from our inn in the suburb, if I remember right, in Bishopsgate. Here they represented various nations, with whom, on each occasion, an Englishman fought for his daughter and overcame them all except the German who won the daughter in the fight. He then sat down with him and gave him and his servant strong drink, so that they both got drunk, and the servant threw his shoe at his master's head, and they both fell asleep. Meanwhile, the Englishman, 
went into the tent, robbed the German of his gains, and thus he outwitted the German also. At the end they danced very elegantly, both in English and in Irish fashion, and thus every day at two o'clock in the afternoon in the city of London, two and sometimes three comedies are performed at separate places, wherewith folk make merry together, and whichever does best gets the greatest audience. The places are so built that they play on a raised platform, and everyone can well see it all. There are, however, separate galleries, and there one stands more comfortably and moreover can sit, but one pays more for it. Thus anyone who remains on the level standing pays only one English penny, but if he wants to sit, he is let in at a further door, and there he gives another penny. If he desires to sit on a cushion in the most comfortable place of all, where he not only sees everything well, but can also be seen, then he gives yet another English penny at another door. And in the pauses of the comedy, food and drink are carried round amongst the people, and one can thus refresh himself at his own cost. The comedians are most expensively and elegantly apparelled, since it is customary in England, when distinguished gentlemen or knights die, for nearly the finest of their clothes to be made over and given to their servants. And as it is not proper for them to wear such clothes, but only to imitate them, they give them to the comedians to purchase for a small sum. What they can thus produce daily by way of mirth in the comedies, everyone knows well who has happened to see them acting or playing. With such and many other pastimes besides, the English spend their time. In the comedies they learn what is going on in other lands, and this happens without alarm, husband and wife together in a familiar place, since for the most part the English do not much use to travel, but are content ever to learn of foreign matters at home, and ever to take their pastime. Right. Handbrake turn time. Here we are at the Today in London recommendation. A few weeks ago, the Shakespeare's Globe exhibition got the treatment. So I won't go over that ground again, not so soon afterwards anyway. So instead, how about this? A private tour of the Tower of London. The Tower figures in several Shakespeare plays, so we've not gone wildly astray with the recommendation. And what's seriously to the point is, this is a great time to do the Tower of London. The number of visitors there still isn't anything like it was pre-COVID. And especially if you're an American, the exchange rate is doing you a big favor just now. Drop us a line at londonatwalks.com and we'll get you a world-class guide. You've been listening to the Today in London History podcast emanating from www.walks.com, home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company, London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just-the-right-size walking tour company. And as long as we're at it, London's multi-award-winning walking tour company. Indeed, London's only award-winning walking tour company. And here's the secret. London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. 
It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for £20 a walk, but you cannot get world-class guides, let alone accomplished professionals. It's not rocket science. You get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road. We had to answer a searching question. Do we want to make the most money? Or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company in the world. You do whatever you have to do to attract and keep the best guides in London. You want them guiding for you, not for somebody else. Bears repeating, the way we're structured, a guides cooperative, is the key to the whole operation. It's the reason for all those awards. It's the reason people who know go with London Walks. It's the reason we've got a big following, a lively, loyal, discerning following. Quality attracts quality. It's the reason we're able, uniquely, to front our walks with accomplished, in many cases, distinguished professionals. Barristers, doctors, geologists, museum curators, archaeologists, historians, criminal defense lawyers, Royal Shakespeare Company actors, a bevy of MVPs, Oscar winners, I call them, people who've won the Guide of the Year Award. Well, you get the idea. As that travel writer famously put it, if this were a golf tournament, every name on the leaderboard would be a London Walks guide. And as we put it, London Walks guides make the new familiar and the familiar new. And on that agreeable note, come then, let us go forward together on some great London Walks. See you tomorrow.